Welcome to the Smith Sense Podcast with Matt Smith. I'm Anthony Bruno, and in each episode, Matt and I discuss ideas that are at first blush, best suited for entrepreneurs, managers, and anyone navigating a business or a team, but really they're ideas, licenses, and strategies, and philosophies that apply to anyone trying to navigate a successful life. It's not hustle porn, we're not pimping a book or a consulting practice, we're just talking about the ideas and topics that rise up in our everyday lives while trying to create something new. This week's discussion is designed to make yourself ask a question. Do you really want to be an entrepreneur? Or are you really ready to be an entrepreneur? Because there's a lot of time and money wasted on startups that don't provide value, and on entrepreneurs who are more interested in the trappings of entrepreneurship than the hardships and sacrifices needed to be successful. Matt calls it the performative entrepreneur. And it might seem counterintuitive for us to discuss this because after all, we are a podcast that many would say is designed to help and encourage entrepreneurs, and we're not alone. There's an entire industry and field of academia designed to make people think that they can be entrepreneurs. But whether it's this podcast or a class in school or a book or an accelerator program, if there's not some hard truth spoken about whether you're ready to take on the entrepreneurial mantle, then there's probably something that's not worth your time. So with that, here's Matt. Matt, thanks again for joining me today. Um, I had a quick thought I wanted to start with, if I could, which is that in the sort of the show description, when we tell people what we're talking about here on this podcast and whatnot, we talk a lot about how these are like successful strategy or strategies for successful entrepreneurs and, and things like that. And as I was thinking about it, now that we've been doing this for a while, you know, what we talk about really isn't only limited to entrepreneurs. I, I mean, I think really anybody, whether they're an entrepreneur or just, you know, working at a company can take advantage of a lot of the topics and philosophies we discuss. And so, I don't know, I just wanted to, I mean, you, you speak because you're an entrepreneur and so you're speaking from your point of view. I'm not an entrepreneur, so I'm speaking from my point of view. I just want to know what you thought about that, if it made sense to sort of expand a little bit. Yeah, I think it makes sense to explain it at least. I mean, the thought is the purpose of this podcast is really to talk about things that we find particularly interesting because we're running a business and I've done a lot of that in my life. Then entrepreneurship ends up running through a lot of it, but it's not just limited to that. We also talk about things like finance. I'm very interested in finance and investing. So that ends up being a, a topic. And there's a lot of, I think, overlap of a lot of different topics, by the way. So I think you could have entrepreneurship and you have investing in finance. I think you could layer onto that some leadership stuff, there's some philosophy in there, intermixed in the whole thing. And then there's just your basic roles that we have in life. So as parents, for instance, you know, that ends up being a topic or finds its way into things from time to time. So ultimately, we're trying to talk about things that we find interesting in the hope that they'll be useful to other people. The focus on entrepreneurship is just because, uh, you know, I've been doing that for a long time. And I know a lot of people who are entrepreneurs who are doing building businesses and, uh, you know, I, I really hold the entrepreneur to a pretty high level. However, I've worked with a lot of entrepreneurs. We've had this summer camp for a decade in, uh, in Vilnius, Lithuania, where we had young people, young entrepreneurs come from all over the world. And we would talk to them about their businesses and what they were doing. And there were a lot of people we'd run into and say, you know, it's easy. They'd be very bright people and they'd have lots of energy and they'd be very smart, often very well educated. And the business idea was clearly, in some cases, not a worthwhile pursuit. You know, it's just like this person probably should go get a job instead. And I, I would tell people that from time to time. It was always very deflating to people. And it wasn't that I didn't really believe in them and that they couldn't be successful as an entrepreneur. It's just that their talents, you know, maybe weren't fully leveraged by being an entrepreneur, at least at this point in their career. So the other day, I stumbled across a research paper that was done, I guess, at the end of 2019. And it's called towards an entrepreneurial economy, the entrepreneurship industry and the rise of the 
Veblenian entrepreneur. That's pretty, pretty dense there, Matt. Academics, you know. Veblenian. 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 Oh, okay. Veblen was a Norwegian entrepreneur. He was a Norwegian economist. I'm probably not even pronouncing his name right. But anyway, this academic paper essentially goes into this whole idea. Uh, it sort of takes my my fears about what you see sometimes in entrepreneurship, kind of the culture that's built around it, sort of the worshiping of fail fast, those kinds of ideas, and almost something that's a lot like a dogma. And it talks about the huge industry, the entrepreneurial industry, and that that's something like $13 billion in 2014 and growing 12% a year over the last couple of decades. I mean, it's a huge growth business selling stuff to entrepreneurs. My point is, is that this academic paper really formalized a lot of the loose thoughts I had on it and worries I'd had about how people might be making bad decisions for themselves as entrepreneurs. I'm sure you'll reference the paper, but let's take a step back just for a second. And maybe you could summarize what some of those concerns are. Because what I'm hearing, I, I think everyone has an idea what you're getting at here, because there's this whole, the entrepreneur lifestyle, like like the idea of, I want to seem like an entrepreneur without actually, you know, doing anything. Or the appearance of being a successful entrepreneur without actually being one. Like there's a lot of unsexy stuff involved in being an entrepreneur, which gets lost when you focus on the sexy part about being an entrepreneur. We as a, a society, which is really good for America, it's this way, but we value entrepreneurs very highly. You know, we hero worship entrepreneurs. I mean, you think about Steve Jobs and Elon Musk, and there's many, many entrepreneurs you could go down the list uh, that people know well, understand well, like they know their history. There's been biographies written on them. There's tons of them. It's the fame component, the image. It's the image. And so this, and I know we didn't want to get into the research paper stuff, but this is where this part is important. No, I, I want to. So the Veblenian thing is basically that, you know, there's a certain consumption of items that's utility-based. But beyond that, there's a, there comes a certain time where, where consumption of items is about status, okay? And so he basically, he wrote this famous uh, paper, or maybe it was a book uh, called the, the Rise of the Leisure Class. And basically it was just talking about, you know, as societies developed from basic, um, you know, owning things for just their pure utility to, to having like tokens that were like symbolic of their power and status within the community and, you know, trophies. conquering other tribes, exactly, trophies. And so that's what he's, what he's basically saying here is that partially because of the good salesmanship of the entrepreneurial industry of telling people, selling the dream, and partially because maybe the economic opportunities, the job prospects for people aren't as good as they ought to be, that people choose to go into entrepreneurship instead so that this, to grow their status, you know, to, to increase their, their status within their community, within their, so their parents don't look at them and go, we spent $100,000, you know, a year for you to go to some elite university and you're, you know, you're a Starbucks barista. It's a lot easier to say, no, I'm starting my own business. I'm an entrepreneur. It's, a, it's just from a status perspective, it's a lot easier to deal with. Does that make sense? It does. And there's also a flip side to that, that there's a lot of autonomy that sort of gets built into the idea of being an entrepreneur as well. It's like, like there's this idea that either you start your own business, you're an entrepreneur, or you're a slave to the man. And there's no in between, which is nonsense, obviously. But like, but that's sort of the way it's presented a lot. Yeah, it's total nonsense because I, I think you're way more of a slave as the owner of a business <laughs> than you are as an employee of the business. People don't understand that, but I mean, it's instead of worrying about whether or not I'm going to lose my job, I have to worry about whether or not the 25 families that depend on me are going to lose their jobs. You work for your people. Anyone who has a who's built a, a you know a business of any size understands this, but the failure rate is so high 
among entrepreneurs. You know, people tout it like it's not even a bad thing, but 90% of ventures fail is commonly cited statistic. 90% of ventures fail. So that shows that there's a lot of huge amount of waste, you know, that is going into that, you know, that and destroys people's lives. But that's always been the case. Has it not? It's increased. It has increased. It's not like most of the businesses are actually producing. So they distinguish between two types of entrepreneurs. Uh, they have one that they say is an innovative entrepreneur, one that's basically bringing innovation to the way things are being done. And the other is the Veblenian entrepreneur. The Veblenian is mostly concerned with what they call identity work. So rather than trying to solve a specific problem in the marketplace, for instance, which this has always been a pet peeve of mine, people, you know, when you have somebody who is looking for a problem to solve, you know, they come right out of college and, or, you know, or maybe they don't go to college, but they, they have, don't have any real career experience at all. Don't have any much adult experience yet even. And then they're, and not to say these people can't be incredibly successful entrepreneurs. They have been, you know, but the problem is they don't even know what to solve. They don't even know of a problem yet because they haven't had enough interaction with the world yet. So they create an app that says, where are the most like single girls at the bar or some stupid yeah. bro app or whatever. Maybe that turns into Tinder and it ends up being huge and it can, those things can work. But for the most part, they're, they're walking around, they decide they want to be an entrepreneur and then they're looking for the venture. So they look for the venture after they decide to be an entrepreneur. And most often you find people who start with a problem and then they end up being an entrepreneur. You know, The Veblenian entrepreneur is primarily concerned with identity work. I think that's one of the key differences that they, they, they draw here. Okay. So I, I think what you're saying is that there's basically, everyone essentially is looking for a solution to a problem. The, the difference is what the problem is for the Fleblian. The Blenian. I'm going to let it go, but I'm really having yeah. a hard time with that one. Let's call it performative because I think that's a better performative. word. Performative entrepreneurs. Yeah. Okay, fine. Yeah. So, so the performative entrepreneur, the problem is I want to be an entrepreneur and I need a company to start to allow myself to be that entrepreneur versus the other one is like, there's a problem in the world that's not being solved. And I have an idea on how to solve it. And I have to do it no matter what. That's like a quest or something like that. You feel compelled to do it. Okay. So that's one part of it. So I just, I just sort of like a grid here that I'm thinking about in my head. And that is there's the company and then there's the person. And so on one hand is, is the idea for the company useful or not, right? So yes or no. And then is the person, the right person to lead the company Yes or no. So those things don't always necessarily match up. So you might have someone who's a good entrepreneur or has the bones to be a good entrepreneur, but focusing his or her efforts on a bad idea. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe there's a good idea, but the person who's executing it is not the right person to be the entrepreneur. You understand what I'm saying? Yep, those certainly could be. And there's other iterations of that too, where you know the it's the right person, but not yet. Like the, maybe there's some skills that they need first. And I mean, I could say that the reason I've been sort of sensitive to this and seen it before is because I started off as a Veblenian entrepreneur. I really did. You wanted to be an entrepreneur without a problem to solve. My career prospects were shitty. Like there was, I didn't have a lot of other options. So, <laughs> so I, and I know that, you know, people who especially entered the marketplace right after the financial crisis or people who might, God forbid, have it be entering it now, the opportunities are just far less. And so you can have very talented, you know, well-educated, very skilled people just with the job offers that are just not, not compelling at all. And so those people understandably enter you know, the entrepreneurial world in search of an alternative of something else that they can do. And I understand that because they don't want to be the Starbucks barista. They think that's undervaluing them. And so they work on something where they can, they can create value. I'm kind of scrolling through the, this paper that you're talking about here. And I just want to dig into some of the specifics of it here for a second. And I'm skimming it. So please correct me if I'm not getting the essence of a lot of it. But 
he calls a lot of what you're talking about the uh, you know the performative entrepreneurs and what they create as like muppets. There's the muppets and the gazelles. Muppets are sort of like the you know the ones that aren't really propelling the economy, and gazelles are. And it says here that gazelles that disproportionately propel the economy, being already rare, are becoming rarer. And That's right. Becoming rarer by virtue of so many more muppets adding to the ratio mix. Essentially, the failure rates maybe always been high, but the ratio of gazelles or growth companies that come out of it is more rare than ever. And one thing that I think if people don't understand, I think it's worth mentioning, they talk about in this paper, is that the average lifetime earnings of an entrepreneur are less than they would have been if they were wage earners. And I think that's what a lot of people don't understand. You, people think you become an entrepreneur and you get rich, which is the primary motivation that the entrepreneurial industry uses to draw people in. But it, in fact, most people actually would earn more if they just had a regular job. Now, it doesn't mean that they should have a regular job because the Flexibility trade-offs, doing work that feels more meaningful to you—it certainly could be worth it. But you know, people need to know that oftentimes you earn a lot less as an entrepreneur, not a lot more. Right. But I guess what I'm saying is that with that ratio uh, difference, right? Part of me is thinking, like, so what? Like, what's the problem? Okay, so I get it. it's annoying to see a bunch of you know poserpreneurs, if you want to put it that way. Even I just kind of I like that one. So what? So there's a lot more noise, which is a little bit harder to find the signal, but like. When those companies, when those value companies come out, they're still successful. They still contribute to the economy. Are the number of, of Muppets somehow making it harder for the value companies to become successful? Or is it just a perception thing? Well, I mean, there's a lot of destruction that happens if you have a lot of Muppets, a lot of these performative entrepreneurs. I mean, it's good for the entrepreneurship industry, certainly, because that industry continues to boom. Sure. But I think you have people who's Financial stability is destroyed in the process. I mean, entrepreneurs who are basically, because it's seen as something that's achievable by everybody and that you can make almost anything work, you know, just the entrepreneurship industry sells it all as it's relatively easy to be successful. So it draws people in who are, wouldn't otherwise come in and they end up destroying their own balance sheets along the way, trying to pursue it. Okay. So they can end up dramatically weakening themselves and just destroying capital along the way. It destroys relationships. It destroys people's lives. I mean, there's actually, they have specific examples of people in here who talk about how they just wish they never would have done anything. They just wish, you know, they, they have deep regret of all the mistakes that they made along the way. So I think there is individual damage, but whatever. People make bad decisions all the time in their lives. And I guess this is really not any different necessarily. But I think one of the biggest things is that, you know, when I was in college, I, I ran a, a painting franchise business called College Pro Painters. And the people that were there, the people, the franchisees, they would call them, these were all college kids and they, they were very impressive people. They were all incredibly impressive. They all busted their ass. They all had seemingly unusual skills and maturity for their age. And I remember at one of the, maybe the holiday party or something, I was, I was there and I'm like thinking, man, these people are so smart. Why are we painting houses? <laughs> like, <laughs> it seems like there's something better we could be doing. If you took all these people, you focused them on a, like a worthwhile pursuit. We could really do something big, like something really exciting, something that really could make a difference. Like, it could make everyone a lot of money too, you know? But I mean, like, there could be something better than this. And I think that's really what it is. It's the opportunity cost associated with it. From the performative standpoint or the Veblenian standpoint, if you believe that they're pursuing it in part because of the status associated with it, and the reason for that is because the, the other things that they perceive as opportunities are don't have the same status. And maybe that their friends or their family would look at it on, look at them as maybe they were failing in some way that we need to do a better job of is painting some of those other roles that someone could have as something that's interesting and something that is high status oriented. 
you know, I just think it's a part of our whole education system that's a problem. Like, you know, you go to Germany or Switzerland and they have a whole apprenticeship system, you know, that is not considered bad. So you have people who go into the trades and make a great living and you have people, you know, who maybe don't have, you know, four-year degrees from university, but they work manufacturing satellites. I mean, high-tech, you know, engineers, you know? So for us, it's like you get a degree and then you either get some title that sounds good, you know, some, uh, you work for a, a well-named company like Apple or Goldman Sachs or something, or else you're perceived as somehow failing unless you become an entrepreneur. And it just seems like there's got to be some other role in there that makes a lot of sense that people could have. And if it was, if there was some status associated with it, if people, if we could communicate it right, that people would seek out those roles instead. Like we have a great business and it's growing and we, we have a great team, but I mean, having great talent is the key to driving it forward. And I've met lots of entrepreneurs who are working on things that worked on things for a long time that never worked. And those people would be a lot better running, you know, our sales department or something, you know, honestly, and they would build the skills and then they could from there go on and start something once they had more skills and once they had more awareness of what, you know, some of the challenges were. And I, we talked about this actually before with millennials and that, that millennials, they, they have to have a story to tell their friends and family that help explain that they're, they're doing something meaningful with their work, with their time. Like the meaning in their work is really important to millennials. And so they need to, you need to help give them a story that's portable. So that when they're working for a company no one's ever heard of, their family and friends go, oh, it sounds cool. It doesn't have to be anything crazy, but it has to sound cool. I mean, it sounds like the problem is, is this idea of this, the whole idea of status, like the perception. Is what I'm doing pleasing to me versus is what I'm doing look acceptable to others? And it seems to me that you should completely and totally ignore the latter. I just don't care. <laughs> like, you know, I think it's a generational thing. Well, I, I also maybe want to challenge a little bit your interpretation of it because maybe the millennials just truly want to feel themselves as if they're doing something that matters. And maybe that perception to others is also part of it. But maybe the root of it is, is from the millennial standpoint is just first and foremost, whether they themselves feel it has meaning. Uh, it's a small point. No, no, I, I think you're right. They have to feel, they need to, it needs to feel like it has meaning. But I, I, I think that starts with, this goes into a whole other thing, but there's this concept called a um, mimic theory. And basically the all value that we have comes from other people. Essentially, we look at what other people see as valuable and then we assign value to that because other people see it as valuable. I guess when it comes to someone who's thinking about, okay, do I get a job type job or, or do I start my own business and whatnot? Are there certain elements, components, uh, checklists, prerequisites that I should be thinking about to help me make that decision? How do I know if this business venture, if I'm entering this for the quote unquote right reasons, how do I think about that? You know, obviously this depends upon the person to a great degree. And I think that one of the main reasons that people get into this category of businesses that these guys classify as Muppet businesses, there's a class that's really, they just, you know, really the goal is to become self-employed. And they say most of those businesses fail, but I don't think that there's really a problem with that. I mean, that's a reasonable trade-off, the freedom that you might get from being self-employed. There's a couple different classes. If we look at starting like a, a venture-backed company or looking at going on something that is a self-employment route because maybe you're, uh, you want to have kids and you don't want to have to have the clocking in, clocking out thing, you know, 40 hours a week. Right. And in that situation, you really are just becoming self-employed, kind of an independent contractor. Or you want freedom in a, you know, some other way, or you want to be able to travel or whatever. Not that anyone can travel anymore. <laughs> I used to be able to. Do you know that Americans can't even go to Europe? To the EU. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Not every country in Europe is part of the EU. It's just worth noting. Do you know Iceland is, falls in that category? I only look at whether or not I can go to Sweden. And I, right now, Sweden's wide open. So there you go. 
just a quick side point on that point. There's a big difference between being self-employed and being an entrepreneur. I was self-employed. I would never for a minute consider myself an entrepreneur. And I get that. So there's that, okay, I'm going to freelance. I'm going to do my own thing. Freedom, you know, life as a pirate. Like, I get that. But that's a totally, like, different thing than, like, actually starting a business that employs other people, that takes money that other people want to invest in, that you need to answer to. There's a whole world of difference. So I think maybe we just define that and put it off to the side for a second. Okay. So that aside, then I think that the biggest thing is if the idea that you have is unclear, you know, if you don't understand the nature of the problem that you're specifically trying to solve because you haven't encountered it in your life in such a way that that problem kept you from doing something you wanted to do, you probably should just get a job for now instead. I mean, you really should work on building your skill stack instead of trying to start the venture. So your skill stack, but also your experience in whatever the spaces that you're thinking about addressing, just so you can more grandly understand the nature of the problem itself that you're trying to solve, right? Like to actually experience the problem more directly as the person affected by it. Right. I feel like it's very hard to start a business. I mean, now there are there are lots of really, really innovative businesses. I mean, you can look at basically the, all the things that Elon Musk is, is working on. You know, these aren't problems that he was encountering in his other day and his day to day and said these were things like, wouldn't it be cool if most businesses are not started on that basis? And he'd also had a bit of a history of creating and, and running businesses before he started these other things. Exactly. PayPal. So PayPal, starting with something like that first, where you're like, what's the problem? Well, you can't actually send money online easily. It's really hard for a business, especially if you're an eBay seller, to be able to receive money. It's a huge problem. And it's a very, it seems like seemingly an acute problem. So when you get into details, it was incredibly complex for them to solve. But, you know, it was a real world problem. And from that, you know, they build enough wealth and enough then experience and skills in other areas that it could expand from there. So I think if it's not a real world problem that you personally experience, it's probably not something you should pursue today. So as we're going through this checklist, right, you know, one, is this an actual problem? Is there a demand? Maybe problem is the wrong word. I think problem is the right word because how do you know? But is it the only word, right? Like demand, I mean, some people might demand something, access something that doesn't doesn't necessarily solve a problem. They just want it. Right. Anyway, I don't want to get into semantics. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And you could go down the consumer route and you could say like, maybe people think they really need another celebrity makeup line. I don't know. (laughs) I mean, just because you could sell something doesn't, you know, and you can build great businesses around that, around essentially uh, rebranding an existing product. And this is done all the time. This is part of the entrepreneurial industry is selling these products that are wholesale that are they can repackage with your own personal brand on them. I mean, I've done some stuff in the fitness space and you know, half of the whey protein you buy comes from the same place. They just put a different label on it. Yeah. You know, it's just like and that's there's a whole industry. And the only people who make the most money in that, of course, are the people that supply the whey protein and do this advanced labeling for the entrepreneurs, you know? The thing is, I think that if you don't encounter if it's not based upon a problem, a specific problem then it's easy to get distracted as to what is the solution would be. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like you think of like, well, people need this. Well, what exactly, you know, like, wouldn't it be better if private schools had transportation to get kids to school? Cause you know, like that's a real problem. Like at least that I have, have had, you know, having to take shuttle the kids back and forth to school because there's no bus, you know, so that's a specific problem. But if I thought, how do we make a uh, Uber available for people under 18? Like, where do you even start with that idea? Right. You know that something there, but then there's the reason they don't do it is because of liability reasons, by the way. I like I was sure that you could actually start a nice van business where you're basically picking up and dropping off kids and a private, essentially, shuttle service for kids in my neighborhood to take them to the private school. You can make a lot of money doing that. I'm quite confident. You know, at least a nice business doing it, a nice income. In any case, I think focusing on problems is important. 
I'm starting to see the breakdown here as we talk. I want to continue with the focus on the business itself, the deliverable, as it were. And so I want to see if there's any other thoughts you have on that. And then if not, then we could switch to internally. If you were to identify the right or a good you know, problem to solve or a good deliverable as a business, then what are the checkpoints you need to look at for yourself as are you the right person to lead the effort around that? If I'm remembering right, we actually, in the Market Friction podcast, we talked a lot about like how to figure out business ideas that work. Yes. And a lot of it was based upon this starting with a problem. And I think that I would encourage people to listen to that for more details on that. In terms of the person themselves, if you're looking at yourself and whether or not you, know, you should be pursuing an entrepreneurial effort versus your other options, I think you know, you're a participant in a market. And so a lot of it is dependent upon what's available to you. And I think that if you're early in your career, you know, just starting out, if you get presented with an opportunity to work around interesting people in an environment where you're going to learn a lot, that is absolutely what you should be doing. You get to a point in an entrepreneurial venture where you're at a fire hose stage of learning, where it's just like, it's overwhelming. But it doesn't start off that way. It starts off with a bunch of like nitpicky little problems you got to solve, like little things. And these, are, but they seem big to you because you've never solved them before, even though they've been solved a million times before, you know? And then you end up working, you know, people end up spending time working on their business cards or nonsense like that. <laughs> you know, seriously, the people that's, it's, it's, that's easier. That's easier to solve, you know? Right. And a little more fun in some cases for some people. Right. But there's a certain stage where you get this fire hose of learning in an entrepreneurial venture. And that's where it is really fun. And it's really intense. And you can basically progress five years ahead of your peers in six months, you know, when you get those environments. But it's hard to create that for yourself. So if you can find a place where you can get that, you should definitely do that early on. You should definitely do that early on. Then you can consider all the entrepreneurial opportunities. They're not going to go away. Actually, the more skilled you get, the more experience you get, as long as you haven't ramped up your lifestyle to exactly match your salary, you know, so that you have no flexibility on a shortage of earn, you know, like to be able to take a pay hit. As long as you haven't done that, the opportunities available to you will only be greater. They will not be smaller. There's a period of dues pain or just, you know, apprenticeship maybe as another way of looking at it. That's the right way of looking at it. Yeah. Okay. I think that's a smart way of doing it. And I think that is because there's a couple of reasons why that approach is really good. You can get into that, uh, you know, that high consumption learning environment very quickly. You also build up allies. You build up people who want to see you be successful. So I have worked with a number of people who, who have gone off to start their own ventures after working with me, and I am happy for them. I want them to do it. I often invest in their businesses along the way. I don't expect them to be you know, tied to me forever and you know, that they're supposed to you know, stay in my business and I'm not trying to trap them. Yeah, maybe there might be some small-minded employers that might do that, but I think it's really rare. And in general, you're going to build allies, whether they be your coworkers, whether they be your customers, or whether they be your current employer. And so building that allyship, essentially, and then also in building some skills and having a better idea of the acute problems that people face enables you to start off with a better business where you don't have to go millions of dollars in to capital raising in order to build something substantial. So this is interesting because I, th I think where we're going with this is, is for folks listening or have been listening to us for a while that are either in the process of starting their own business or thinking about it. This is almost like the antithesis. It's like, it's like the hold on, like really think through what you want, what you're doing before you, before you take, you know, too many firm steps forward here. And so I want to add one other part to it, which is what are the warnings that you would want to give someone who's right now just got the stars in their eyes about you know, what it is to be an entrepreneur, the status and all the other things. Could you talk a little bit about the ugly realities? You hinted at them a little bit before, the, the concern about, you know, 25 families, not just your own, for instance, and the nitpicky stuff and, and things like that. But 
for someone who's maybe listening, who's really only been thinking about the being on the stage and giving the keynote and you know all, all the, the glitz part around being the entrepreneur, take a second and really scare the hell out of some people with some of the stuff that they don't see, the ugly under the rug kind of details that they're going to be facing should they choose this route. I think, first of all, I'd say that when you, if you have that idea in your head, if you give in the keynote, like you have to realize you bought the lie. Like that is not what being an entrepreneur is. It's not doing a TED talk. It's not having a conference speaking spot. It's not being a thought leader. It's not any of that. That might come. The day-to-day is you go from basic, like you go from almost complete boredom and tedium to total terror. You know, I mean, then you can have some things that you have times where it's, of course, really exciting, you know, as you start to, when you get that first customer and you get the first dollar in the door, I mean, that is like a, it's like a miracle just happened. It really is amazing the first time that happens. You can think it'll happen. You can believe it'll happen. But when that first dollar comes in, you should always celebrate because it's a big deal. And uh, most businesses don't make it that far. Honestly, they don't make it that far. And then once the customer starts to come in and then you get all this, you know, things start to develop, you experience great customers, you experience a lot of some awful customers, some people who really, you know, work to take advantage of you. You bring employees in, you have HR departments, you have employees who fraternize with one another, causing you all kinds of problems you couldn't even imagine. I, for fun, owned a bar for fun. I had my ad business and I bought a bar for fun. And I made more money in one day with my ad business than I made in the best month with that bar. Okay. So it was like not fun from the financial perspective. I got sued four times the bar did four times in my, when I owned that bar, you know, somebody fell down the stairs, they were drunk to people getting fights at the bar. You know, I got sued for that. Sounds like a fun bar. It wasn't fun. <laughs> it was, I mean, to attend, not to own, but you know, it sounds like a place I'd like to hang out. It was, I mean, it, uh, there were a lot of good things about it. I mean, I had a lot of, actually one of my bouncers was the heavyweight UFC champion. Okay. Yeah. You know, it's great. Tim Sylvia. Okay. Yeah, huge guy. Yeah. And I had lots of like, lots of these UFC guys were our, bouncers but the problem is they like to fight and they were good at it and i got sued a couple <laughs> times because of them you know so you can get sued you can uh you a lot of times people will borrow money from their friends and family you borrow it with this a sense of truly uninformed optimism you end up uh, straining these key relationships because you can't deliver on it hard to have a good relationship with a, a partner or spouse when you're doing this because you work all the time people used to ask me how many hours do you work i would say all of them yeah because even if you're not actively working you're probably actively worrying it's on your mind. Your mind's yeah. churning on some nugget of something. That's right. And in the early stages, you are actively working. You are actually actively working all the time. I mean, at this point, I don't work as much, but I, you know, definitely still the worry part is more. There's more mental still. Yeah. But it was physical, just total exhaustion, 100 hours a week, 120 hours a week. So that flip side sounds like responsibility, if I were to sum it up into a word. Like, you know, it it's responsibility. responsibility. Yeah. Like, you know, there's the fame and there's the image, but that comes with the responsibility. And I don't want to get into the Spider Man cliche or anything like that. But like, you know, at some point, you have to realize, if you want the the image, if you want the the notoriety, if you want to be seen as that as the guy, so to speak, that comes with a lot of responsibility that can age you very quickly. If your goal really is to be seen as that person, to be the person on stage, like maybe there's a better way than being trying to be pretending you're an entrepreneur. Yeah, maybe the other way is to be the guy who tries to give advice to the entrepreneurs, which is that cottage industry that we're talking about, right? Exactly. A lot of them end up doing that. A lot of failed entrepreneurs end up becoming that. Maybe you should be a stand-up comedian if you want people's attention. What you'll see is that a lot of the thought leaders are not people who started their own business. They're people who worked and did great work within existing businesses. I can't remember the lady who, uh, you know, she was like the, the head of the HR or the head of people for Netflix. 
And she was, you know, responsible for Netflix's culture deck, which they, you know, had this whole thing about they're well known for providing lots of freedom to their employees, but radical responsibility too. Um, maybe it was the lady who wrote Radical Candor, in fact, I'm not sure. But, you know, you can develop this great expertise in the work and you can be a thought leader in the work. Being able to contribute publicly and be seen as an expert is not as an entrepreneur. I think it's the hardest way to possibly do it. That makes sense. Let's talk a little bit about that cottage industry for a second. Like, if entrepreneurship is the gold rush, there's quite a lot of people that are making money selling the pickaxes, right? And how do you feel about that in general? And are there any that you feel are particularly useful versus those that are just people just trying to, you know, take advantage of the dream? Well, there are plenty of people trying to take advantage of the dream, and that occurs in every in every facet of, you know, of course. But I think that you know, what you find in this paper is that the things that you would even think would be the most upstanding efforts prove to be generally failures. They talk about a, a Midwest State University who developed an entrepreneurship program, you know, that put a lot of money into it, brought experts in for it. They had, you know, the, there was a whole area of study for the university. And it was a, it was another failure. Didn't produce entrepreneurs. Ultimately, the people in those programs, you know, left the university with all this debt. Actually, let me read from it for a second. It says, like many other universities, they set up business incubators, pitching competitions, coaching programs, and various entrepreneurship fairs. Many students joined and sought to launch ventures. A third wave feminist sociology students would remodel themselves as biotech entrepreneurs. They would receive support and mentoring from the various entrepreneurship programs offered by the university, and they would build and pitch the venture. But the vast majority struggled to get beyond even the first stage. Eventually, many put aside the life of a failing entrepreneur to find steady jobs and start paying off their substantial debts from college. Often the results were a far cry from the grandiose ambitions they were encouraged to pursue. Even the, the best, most, what would be considered most legitimate programs out there are certainly have difficulty doing it. And I think part of it is, is that, you know, we participate in, you know, Techstars, which I think is a great program. And I've done these entrepreneurship camps and, you know, I've done coaching with entrepreneurs. I, you know, I, I would say I've contributed to this industry in different ways, you know? And it says in this paper that entrepreneurs, like uh, the innovative entrepreneurs, can get things from these things, okay? But the mo majority of people who do, do not, and in fact, perform worse than people who didn't, entrepreneurs that didn't consume things from the entrepreneurship industry. So it's pretty damning, actually, about it all, I think, in terms of the, the, the negative effect for people. What it sounds like is like these programs might help you achieve the thing that you're trying to create, but you've got to have something worth creating first. That goes back to the problem and solution issue that we, that we started with. It's sort of putting the cart before the horse otherwise. Yeah, that's true. And I think a lot of it, uh, you know, in these programs, a lot of times I've seen people who are involved with them and service providers that are around them that aren't entrepreneurs and don't really understand. And so the, uh, they seem to encourage activity that would that I when I see it I go that's not a worthwhile pursuit like don't do that that's a mistake well, yeah it seems that and that's really important you need, you need that editor you need the critical you need the person who's pointing out what's wrong not the person who's going to keep on um, blowing smoke you know like fluffing you up in order to keep taking your money that's what's needed I mean you, you've always been very forthright with your uh, concerns about about anything but I do I really do hold back with people because I don't want to as I understand that I don't understand what is inside of people. And I don't understand what their capabilities are. And I know that people looked at me and thought I, what I was doing many times couldn't be done. I know that. So I try and hedge a little bit on it. But if I'm working with someone over a period of time, you know, I, I definitely try to be, I definitely don't 
give them the only rosy view of how things might work out. Yeah, I mean, criticism is a gift. That's the way I've always thought of it. So like, I guess maybe another thing for folks listening is if they're, if they're in these programs for doing these things, if you're surrounded by a lot of rah-rah cheerleaders for compensation, be immediately very concerned. Like, you know, have that, look for the people that are poking the holes, look for the people that are trying to shine light in your blind spots. That sort of thing might be a, a piece of advice. I don't know, that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's right. And actually, one of the things they talk about in here is that there's uh, part of the entrepreneurship industry is that there's an ideology of entrepreneurship right. that is conveyed. Right. It's like, you can do it, you know, living your best life kind of uh, thing. You right. Know? You know, it's like, you can do it and failure is good. Failure is good. It's failure is a badge of honor. And I think that failure is not a badge of honor. And I think there's a different, there's different levels of failure. There's setbacks and then there's a ruin. And, you know, <laughs> yes. You know, ruin is not failure that you recover from. And that if 90% of ventures end in ruin, that is not necessarily something to be celebrated. Yeah, that's the, the Bob Dylan line, right? There's no success like failure and failure is no success at all. Right, exactly. You know, sorry, I always got to bring it back to Bob Dylan. Last thing to kind of wrap things up a little bit. I want to go back to the whole, so what thing for a minute. I mean, I think what we've been talking about here is like for people that are actually involved in trying to become an entrepreneur, the biggest so what is, you, you know, ruin for you individually, the listener. From an industry, the entrepreneur industry, it's, it still doesn't seem like this greater number of Muppets to gazelle ratio is necessarily a problem for the gazelles. In fact, if anything, I'm wondering if it maybe might somehow, in a weird way, help bring out some more more gazelles. And so let, let me just re- make a music industry example here for a second. Like with the ease of everything, you see more of something, right? So like with uh, in the music industry, digital distribution, a lot more people can kind of make their own music. The gatekeepers, right? The gatekeepers sort of fell away and more people are making music, but most of it is not being listened to. I, I forgot the stats, but you could show that there's there's like X number of more releases every year, but only X number of them actually kind of get anywhere. But the idea is that of that greater number of people attempting it, because the attempt is now easier, the successes are still relatively few, but it just allows some stuff to seep through that might not have in the past gatekeeper regime, if that makes sense, right? The same thing can be said for like YouTube, right? You've got a lot of stuff that people are kind of creating on their own that bubbles up to the surface and becomes successful, but the vast majority of what's being created just kind of goes out into the void. I'm wondering if the same thing kind of applies here. You know, I'm not sure exactly what the gatekeeper was that kept more people from being entrepreneurs and whatnot, but the fact that you have more people trying, it just seems that maybe the top of that funnel is a little bit wider and therefore maybe there might be more opportunities for the gazelles to come out the other side. I think, no, I think fundamentally that's correct. I, you know, I don't, I, mean, I have, you know, I have an interest in a business that, um, you know, sells in, in the entrepreneurship industry, business advice, you know, so I, I think it does good. But at the same time, I also, I think the risk is there's not a great um, diversity of voices that are in that space that are talking about it, that are not part of the entrepreneurship ideology, that are basically not just saying the same things all over again. And, and we talked about yesterday in our, in our other conversation, we talked about hustle porn. Yeah, this whole thing of like hustle porn. And if you don't know what that is, it's basically, it's a, the epitome of it is um, Gary Vee. You know, who's an impressive guy in many ways, you know, but he's like, he's just showing how he's always working. He's always doing stuff. He's always, you know, he's just on the go, go, go. And he's, you know, he's building an interesting media business. I, we'll see, you know, long-term how it does, you know, and he certainly did great with the wine library business. The problem is, is that what people take away from Gary Vee is all the hustle porn that what I need to do is I need to show, I need to be performative. So people end up mimicking and being performative entrepreneurs instead. I had a, a, a guy who I worked with uh, uh, years ago told me, um, you know, was asking me you know, how things were going. And I was just, I told him that I was just really busy. He said, you know, 
I hope you don't mind if I tell you this, but when people tell me they're really busy, it doesn't make me think very highly of them. Like, because if you're so busy, that means you're not either not managing your stuff well, you know, or you're working on stuff you shouldn't be working on. Saying you're busy was a sort of hustle porn badge of honor, you know, a decade ago. It's just gotten more refined and more, um, it's flushed out, you know, there's more, more visual mediums through Instagram, what a hustle porn really looks like. But saying you're busy all the time is just another form of hustle porn. And it's like, see, I'm doing it. You shouldn't be that busy. Like focused work makes a difference. Like choosing to work on one or two things works better. Like that's obvious, but it's so easy to fall into the trap of hustle porn and all the other things. Failure is awesome. Failure is good. Your business shut down. You had to fire all your employees. Yeah, congratulations. (laughs) I mean, like, what is this? How does that that work? And I just think that there needs to be an alternative to that, that people are more real about it. And I also think that we should really work to have an alternative. You know, maybe I should talk to some of my entrepreneur friends about this, though, talking about like, creating a position that you have in a company where basically you're looking for people who are entrepreneurial, who want to be an entrepreneur, and you frame it as almost like an apprenticeship where they get to learn more and they get to do more and they get to contribute in big ways and they can get the fire hose of learning fast and there can be a high status associated with it because of a title or whatever else. And in some ways, a job like a chief of staff can be like that, by the way, you know, because you get exposure to lots of different parts of the business, depending upon that specific role. You are either something like an administrative assistant or you're something like a COO. I mean, that's really the range. Right. That's a wide range. Yeah, exactly. It really is. But it's something that most people don't have. And you can have a chief of staff at basically any, you know, at any executive level in an organization. You don't have to be the CEO or the founder. You know, your sales, um, EVP of sales could have a chief of staff. Right. You know, who's basically just young, hungry, entrepreneurial guy who's looking to, you know, for the fire hose of learning. And looking for allies that are going to help him ultimately succeed in his own efforts to build businesses. And that role, I would imagine, is by design going to be somewhat short-lived by nature of the person getting that fire hose of knowledge and then leaving to do something else. Yep. I think if you set it up as something that you, you know, you know it's a six-month term. Interesting. I just think we need to work on that because I think there I see these super smart people feel like that's the right way for them to go because the truth is, is that the alternatives for them are not good enough for them. They're better than those alternatives. And a lot of that has to do with the job market today and you know just the situation. I get that. But it ultimately ends up being a net negative for them and a net negative for the world that these people are set on a path that has them as marginalized lifestyle entrepreneurs You know, is where they end up versus banks, people who are actually have the ability to and are on a path to really build something really remarkable. You know, or at least contributing to the building of something really remarkable. So I think, yeah, so I'm just going to try to summarize a couple of takeaways here. You know, like one, you know, don't fall prey to the rah-rah industry. You're not the customer, you're the product in that regard, right? You're feeding their lifestyle, not yours, right? So look for the criticism, look for the hard truths, that kind of thing. Two, the apprenticeship, like, you know, take the time to maybe work for someone else for a while before you try to start your own thing to kind of get either A, better skills for yourself in terms of running a company and understanding the ins and outs of that, but also B, maybe getting closer to the problem that you're trying to solve itself. Those are the two big takeaways I guess I had. Was there any others? I just had a little detail around the apprenticeship one. I'm going to talk to my friends about maybe how to formalize something like that to make it more clear that these jobs are available. But early in my career, I created these on my own. I mean, I found people who I was impressed by, who I thought I could learn from, who had problems and I pitched them on working for them, you know, and I, I would take whatever job they had available in the organization because I didn't really know how to pitch. Well, I, you know, I didn't have 
the knowledge to really maybe frame it as a chief of staff. I never even heard of that job until, you know, watching West Wing a couple of decades <laughs> ago. Uh, you never think people was in businesses, but it's become very popular in businesses. I looked for the learning environment. I looked for where there was an opportunity where I thought I could help. And then I went and did what I had to do essentially to, to fill that role, whatever role they had available. And I think that you can do that. If you, there's people you know, you admire companies where you, know, where you think you could learn a lot, ask to work. And I, even if it's for le, you know, less, you're not trying to negotiate the best deal. You're doing it to get allies and you're doing it to learn. This is not the end game. This is step one and a much longer effort to be successful and to build remarkable things. That's interesting. I'm going to send you a picture of this, Matt. Above my desk right now, there's a, a quilt. My grandmother actually made it for me. It's in Swedish, but it, it translates to knowledge is easy to carry. And I just love that. And that's something that I've lived with. You know, I, I personally, and I can't say that I'm not an entrepreneur. I've done all these things, but you know, I've always taken positions that allowed me to learn. That was always the thing that made me take a job. So am I going to learn something more from this? I can't remember the author of this book either, but there's this concept in this book called identity capital. And it's exactly that. It's that you're in your 20s. In your 20s, you need to be focusing on building your identity capital. So it's, you know, people know you, know that you're capable, know that you're trustworthy, you know, are interested in supporting you, and you have a sense of what's, um, where you can have the most impact, you know, and you should be focused on trying to build that identity capital during that period. And then you leverage the benefit of that capital in your 30s. But yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think that uh, too often people think, well, the learning really happens on when I'm going to college. That's where the learning happens. And, you know, after that, I'm supposed to get paid. Yeah. It's not at all the truth. No, not at all. Well, this, this has been really interesting. I think, um, I don't know, any other resources, books, et cetera, that you wanted to, to point out before we, before we close this up? The name of the book was The Defining Decade. The Defining Decade. That's the one that talks about the 20s and identity capital. And this paper, it's called Towards an Entrepreneurial Economy. Right. The Entrepreneurship Industry and the Rise of the Vablinian Entrepreneur. Yep. As a communications professional, I might want to advise them on a better title. But anyway... Yes. Yeah, they could definitely use some copy help, but it's certainly a well-documented, well-sourced research paper. Where can they find this? I think that we will just have to link to it because it is a little difficult to find, to be honest. Oh, okay. Link to the show notes. All right. Yeah. Anything else? No, I think that's it. Okay, great. Well, listen, this, this has been really helpful. I think kind of the, the anti-hustle porn episode, I think, which yes. is, uh, is always good to have. Definitely. Awesome. All right. Thanks. Thanks very much. Look for those resources and we'll see you guys next week. You've been listening to the Smith Sense Podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you'd like to read more about Matt's thoughts on this topic and others, please visit his blog at smithsense.com, where you can also read the show notes, leave questions, and join the discussion. If you like what you've been hearing, please give us a rating on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and sharing it with friends would go a long way. A quick thank you to Russ Rizzo for the show notes, to our engineer, Jason Sanderson, and to the wonderful Zoe Keating for the use of her beautiful music. I'm Anthony Bruno, and we've been sharing time with Matt Smith. Have a good week.